earlier in the retreat, I talked about the first noble truth uh, in the Buddha's first discourse, which is the truth of dukkha, with this wide range of meanings from direct suffering to unreliability, and talked about how uh, along with each noble truth comes uh, a line of advice, a prescription for what to do with it. With the first noble truth, the prescription was that the truth of suffering of dukkha is to be fully understood. We went into the range of what that means. Tonight I want to talk about the second noble truth. And I'll just begin by reading what the Buddha said in that sutta, uh, setting in motion the wheel of the Dhamma. Now what is the noble truth of the origin of suffering? It is this craving which leads to renewed existence, accompanied by delight and lust, seeking delight now here and now there, that is, craving for sense pleasures, craving for existence, craving for non-existence. When I first started to hear uh, the Buddha's teachings, this was a very meaningful teaching for me. I think I mentioned that I came into practice because of unhappiness and confusion in, in my life. And the experience at that time was that I was just uh, suffering in this kind of dark cloud of unknowing. And I had no idea you know, which way to turn, if there was a way out, the direction of the way out, or anything. And when I heard this teaching, it was a revelation because it said there is a cause for unhappiness. And the cause is craving. So I knew that somebody had figured this puzzle out. And that gave me tremendous faith and inspiration. I wasn't just lost in this massive cloud any longer. But somebody had found what was putting it together. And anytime something has a cause, that cause can be undone. So this was really the, uh, my doorway to freedom. Hearing the second noble truth, it was very, very meaningful for me. The Buddha's pointing to uh, craving as the cause of suffering doesn't deny other people's analyses of causes of suffering. You know, in the Western world, there are many other analyses of what causes suffering. Marx analyzed it and brought it down to political and economic factors. Those are still valid. Freud analyzed it in terms of childhood development. Those may still be valid. Franz Fanon analyzed it in terms of uh, cultural oppression based on race. That is still valid. So there are solutions on other levels, economic, political, cultural, racial, psychological, that are valid in their own domains. But the Buddha's analysis is so valuable because the domain that it applies in is the domain of liberation. I don't know of any other system that provides an analysis that allows for our own liberation. So this is the context of the second noble truth. The word that he used that is uh, almost universally translated as craving, the Pali term is tanha, its original meaning is just thirst. This is not a complicated psychological term in Pali. It just means thirst. And you'll see that the Buddha did this often with his terminology. He'll take a familiar word from the culture and reframe it uh, to suit his teachings. Nibbana actually has a history also within India prior to uh, the Buddha's adopting it. The original meaning is just thirst. I like this uh, metaphor of thirst because it's a pointer to, uh, number one, the kind of deeply embedded nature of tanha, and also its uh, recurring, its recurring feature. If we are thirsty and we take a drink, ah, we're satisfied, we're quenched for a while. But we go longer, the mouth gets dry again, and we're thirsty again. Tanha is like this. It recurs again and again. So the satisfaction is only temporary. And then the thirst comes back. It's this recurrent nature of craving, the incessant quality of it, 
that I think explains the phrase that uh, Sally used a couple of talks ago, where she talked about our human inability to sustain contentment. We are unable to sustain commitment if we have not examined the mind because this force comes in again and again and tells us you need something else and you need it now. So an initial contentment may be there. You'll find moments of deep peace and contentment in your practice, but watch at some point the following message will come. It's not enough. Now you need this thing. Finding delight now here and now there. The word desire has gotten a bad rap in Buddhism. You'd get a bad rap too if you were the cause of suffering. But we have talked about the fact there are different kinds of desire. There are desires that lead to suffering. There are desires that lead in the direction of freedom. So some of the desires that lead in the direction of wholesome include tanha or craving, lobha or greed, raga or lust, kamachanda or sense desire. Some of the ones that lead in the direction of wholesome states of mind are chanda when it's connected with our practice, uh, often translated as zeal, as a base for spiritual success. Dhamma-chanda, a love for the dhamma, the truth. Samasankapa, uh, or right attitude, right intention, uh, including the aspiration or the wish for freedom. And in all the metta and compassion phrases that we've used, the wish for others' well-being and our own well-being. These are wholesome desires. Craving is not. So we'll be clear about this one. It is always viewed as a disturbing factor in the mind and a cause of suffering either subtle or gross. Although it's put in terms of a desire force, uh, it's important to understand that craving doesn't just mean the greed force but it encompasses the whole notion that things should be different than they are. So it encompasses greed, aversion, and delusion. Really, you can see in this way that greed and aversion are just two sides of the same coin. When we have an idea of the way we want things to be, then we resist anything that is different than that. So greed and aversion depend on one another. Delusion is that we don't see how we're doing this. We don't see that we're trying to manipulate the present moment out of greed or aversion to shape it a different way. So the fundamental meaning of craving is uh, wanting things to be different than the way they are. One of the qualities that you find in craving that you don't find in the wholesome desires is that it lacks qualities of wisdom because it's accompanied with delusion, and it lacks the quality of patience. Craving has, the, has an urgency that says, uh, I need it now. So there's this immediate uh, yearning and dissatisfaction with craving. We can have an aspiration for freedom, but accompanied by wisdom, we understand that the path to freedom is, is one of some duration. And we have the accompanying quality of patience that lets us even settle in contentment and peace even though we haven't reached the goal. Craving doesn't have this quality of patience. Just to highlight this mixture of of the kilesas, the Buddha said that one should make an end to suffering without making an end to greed, aversion, and delusion. That is impossible. So these other three are, are bound up intrinsically in craving. I like this word craving because it seems to apply so much to what we see in the world today. The world has changed a lot since I was a kid. And a lot of it, it seems to me, is not for the better. And one of the things I see, and I I guess, you know, my generation has to take some responsibility, is a world where, in Western society today, and in America particularly, 
where all kinds of restraints and prohibitions have just been thrown out the window. And you see people just involved in the, um, in the naked pursuit of pleasure through you know, many, many uh, means. So it just seems like um, unrestrained sexuality is held up as a, a reasonable form of pursuit. Violence is condoned or even glamorized in our culture. Dress has gone way from, way far from the style of modesty that, that I grew up with. And the use of drugs has become so prevalent that it hardly even gets noted until somebody gets arrested, which doesn't happen all that often. And there's this kind of culture that anything goes today. Anything goes. Young actresses and, and stars go out on the town and behave really in outrageously bad ways, and it only serves to heighten their celebrity because gossip sells. So then they get a bigger contract than they had before. I, I have to say I was kind of, I don't consider myself a prude by any means. I lived through the 60s. But I, I was, and I participated wholeheartedly. <laughs> but I have to say I was kind of shocked when, when the queen knighted Mick Jagger. I mean, if I can think of anyone who represents the excesses of behavior that were initiated by the 60s, it would probably be Mick Jagger. And for him to be recognized and kind of elevated to that status as a revered cultural icon, that was a little much. I and mean, what message... What message does that send to our children? You know? I, I started feeling a bit like a temperance preacher in the 1890s. But you have to ask the question, is, is this lack of restraint leading to real happiness? You know, or was there something in those old-fashioned standards that were called morality? Now, I don't think they were necessarily pinned by a lot of wisdom, but maybe as they had evolved over millennia, concepts like uh, refraining from sexual misconduct, refraining from the use of drugs and intoxicants that cause heedlessness, maybe there's something to those quaint old ideas. So one of the things that I think is interesting to see in modern culture is the difference between the gratification of craving on the one hand and what leads to happiness on the other. And I think as we explore the qualities of uh, restraint through, through our precepts, we find what you know, more genuinely leads to happiness. And one of the things that, that, I, that I sometimes reflect on, you, know, you, can, you can sort of see uh, the outcome of someone's life in their face after a certain age. Someone said that by age 50, human beings get the face that they deserve. (laughs) I I don't know about that, but... You know, one one of the photos that's very revealing to me is that of Keith Richards, the lead guitarist for the Stones. Keith Richards was born in 1943, so I guess he'll, he'll be 64 or was 64 this year. And his face has, has the lines of a lot of, a lot of aging. And then you look at the face of the Dalai Lama, who was born eight years earlier than Richards, and he's 72 this year. And you see the, the clarity of his uh, skin, complexion, and you have to ask, you know, which is the wiser kind of path to follow? <laughs> On a bigger scale than the Rolling Stones, even. When we look through the whole world in a, in a, in a big historical view, I think, you, you know, you've probably seen this many times, it itself is driven by the forces of greed, hatred, and delusion. 
And as the Buddha commented on it in his third, the third discourse that he gave, he said, all is burning. And burning with what? Burning with the fire of lust, burning with the fire of hatred, burning with the fire of delusion. The world looks like this today, and I think it has probably always looked like this. I doubt there has ever been a time in human history that there has not been war. So war is the most visible eruption of the forces of greed and hatred and confusion, but it's not the only one. You know, through, throughout, the, uh, throughout the world, we see the effects of corporate greed in the destruction of the environment, the level of pollution. We see personal greed in the, the frauds that have gone on uh, on Wall Street. We see the effect of racism, domestic violence, the abuse of children. The list goes on and on. You look at any one of these and you can see the, the driving forces of greed, hatred, and delusion in the minds of individuals carrying out these actions. The Buddha said, clouded by ignorance and driven by craving, sentient beings wander through samsara. This really is the story of the world today, and I think always has been the story of the world. So by purifying our hearts, we help to break this pattern. By reducing the force of greed, hatred, and delusion in our own individual being and taking that back into the world, we help to change it just a little bit at a time. One of the other comments about uh, craving that is in this statement of the Second Noble Truth, the Buddha said, it is this craving which leads to renewed existence. What he's pointing to here is the quality of rebirth. He's saying that it's craving that leads to, the force of craving in our mind that leads to our being born again. There was an interesting thing that happened on my very first three-month course. I sat here in 1977 the second three-month course here at IMS. And one of my friends on that retreat came up to Joseph, and, uh, who was, of course, teaching back then. And you know how, as yogis, you can get very kind of wide-eyed and innocent? You know, the psychological term for it is regressed, but <laughs> I kind of like wide-eyed and innocent. So my friend was in this very wide-eyed and open place, and she came up to Joseph. I think she just picked him out in the lobby one time and said, Joseph, why are we here? And Joseph said, do you mean, you know, ever the rational, do you mean here on this retreat or do you mean here in in this universe? He said, here in this universe. And Joseph said, because you wanted to see and, and smell and taste and hear and touch. That's why you're here. It is this craving that leads to renewed existence. We're all here because we wanted, again, to see and smell and hear and taste and touch. That's kind of mind-boggling, isn't it? That's the volition that brings us back to experience pleasant sensations again. It's kind of wild. So retreat is, of course, the perfect place to look at this force of craving. It happens again and again, even though you know you're not going to get very much out of it. You know, the retreat situation is rather bare of sense pleasures, but it doesn't stop the force of craving from arising. So we do just get to see its conditioned and recurring nature over and over. We're here, of course, not to gratify the force, but to learn about it. So we turn our intention from satisfaction to understanding. So then every arising becomes a new possibility for understanding. And what's important is to um, trust that we can learn from it and not have to run after it. So if craving comes up in terms of desire, we can watch it. If it comes up in terms of aversion, we cannot blame the outer situation, but again, try to understand our own response. Craving arises now here and now there. It picks different objects again and again and again, and this is 
the key to its entrancement, its ability to enchant us. It keeps directing our attention in new places. So we may get bored with one, but craving will find another. Ah, that's really the one. So it keeps the target moving. But each new thing seems to offer the promise of some kind of lasting satisfaction. Part of the delusion within craving is we forget about impermanence. So we don't look beyond the achievement of that particular satisfaction. And we get some sense, some subconscious sense, that it's going to be more lasting than it is. This tendency has been verified by uh, psychological research lately. There's a researcher from Harvard named Daniel Gilbert who's published a whole book. I can't remember the title, but you could just look up his name, Daniel Gilbert, And it's on our inability to predict what will make us happy and what will make us unhappy. The conclusion is that in both cases, we forget about impermanence. We forget how quickly happy things will fade, but we also forget that unhappy things, even things like breaking a leg, will also fade in time, and we are more afraid of them than we really need to be. So there's a kind of um, homeostasis in our happiness level that we will return to, independent of these uh, changing circumstances. But we don't understand that very well. This pursuit is tiring. As you probably know, when you feel the mind in the state of agitation, it's not restful. And if it's like that all day, you probably want to go to bed about an hour before you do in a time when the mind is more balanced. There was an interesting story in Newsweek about uh, Disneyland. Disneyland, uh, you know, it's the place, the motto is, the place where happiness never ends. So the reporter was investigating that, and they happened to go into the staff, uh, the staff dining room. And uh, inside the staff dining room, the characters were still dressed in their costumes because they didn't really have time to change on their lunch break. So Mickey Mouse was sitting down at a table talking to Donald Duck. (laughs) And what Mickey Mouse said was, I've got to get some overtime. I don't have enough money to pay my therapist. (laughs) So... even in Disneyland. (laughs) So the beautiful thing about our practice is that as this uh, force of recurrent craving comes again and again, and we just are, are willing to observe it, the mindfulness starts to slow it down. And in a way, the mindfulness um, acts as a break on this force, which has a huge amount of momentum or you could call mental habit of mind. And when we uh, have this wheel, rolling wheel of desire, it's turning again and again and again, mindfulness is like a brake pad applied to that that just starts to wear it away, wear it away, as we uh, keep from reactivating or reconditioning it. And that's why the quality of peace begins to come in because the craving stops leading us by the nose quite so often. Another way to say craving is self-centeredness. The Dalai Lama often talks in these terms that um, the root problem in the world is self-centeredness, and this is really a, a synonym for craving. Do you notice how we don't get as upset about other people's problems? But the craving comes in around our problems. And this is you know, one of the reasons the Dalai Lama is so lovable. I find this amazing. Somebody asked, you know, I think people often ask him, why do people like you so much? Why do people love you? And he says, I- I'm not really sure. He said, but I think it's because I try to consider every other person as more important than myself. That's a bodhisattva of compassion. Wouldn't that be an amazing way to approach the world? Imagine, I mean, just a simple thing as going into lunch 
and feeling that everybody else's lunch was more important than our own. That would create such a different flavor and way to approach the table. This is also the reason that the quality of bodhicitta, which Carol talked about the other night, uh, is so powerful in meditation practice because bodhicitta puts the emphasis in our practice on the well-being of others so that even our dharma practice comes to be an expression of our caring and moves moves our our very motivation just a little bit away from self-centeredness. Of course we care about ourselves also, but we begin to bring other beings into the the very uh, core of our dharma practice. So of course this self-centeredness is a is a tricky thing. There was a family retreat here at IMS. The, these are retreats where we try to uh, introduce whole families into Dharma practice. And I think what's interesting is these retreats are creating a little bit of a Buddhist family culture in the West. So there are uh, children of all ages from, from you know, three and four on up into the early teens. And then for later teens, they have their own retreat here. And parents come with the children, so it's a whole family kind of bonding experience. So during the family retreat, and one of the teachers, one of the meditation teachers, asked a five-year-old boy, what do you think will happen if you spend your whole life going around just trying to get what you want? And the boy said, trouble. <laughs> also the truth of craving. He knew it better than some of us. So the Buddha in the Second Noble Truth said that there are three kinds of craving. Craving for sense pleasures, craving for existence, craving for non-existence. So I want to talk about these, uh, these three kinds. The craving for sense pleasures is this desire to have pleasant experience at the five senses. Pleasant sight, sound, smell, taste, and touch. Interestingly, as I understand it, the mind door is not included in the craving for sense pleasures. And at one point, the Buddha was talking about the pleasure that came through his practice of strong concentration in the states of jhana. And he reflected on it as he was developing it, and he said, I don't see anything to be afraid of in this kind of pleasure. So what I take that to mean is that as we start developing pleasant uh, meditative states, if we have a desire for them, which we, which we will and we do, that leads us to become more skillful in learning how to access them again and again. And we find that it is through relaxation and contentment and acceptance that those states start to open. So as I understand it, the desire for wholesome states of mind in, in our context leads us to greater skill in meditation and so is not considered to be an unwholesome, an unwholesome wish. But I also want to point out that any wholesome desire, it could be the, the wish for liberation, the wish for concentration, or any wholesome state, can turn into craving. And the difference is if we demand that it happen now. If we can hold it with understanding that it's a, a quality that develops out of the proper causes and conditions, then we aren't ruffled when it isn't present. But if we start demanding that it happen now, then that becomes a craving also. So, again, you look around the scope of the world and you can see how much time and money are spent satisfying these five sense desires. Just a simple one, taste, which isn't even, that's not the most compelling force in my life taste, the restaurant industry in the United States in the year 2005 had annual revenues of $476 billion. So the, that's, and I think that was less than half of the overall food industry. So, so food alone is about a trillion dollars. I'm sorry, yeah, about a trillion dollars. But you can understand that restaurants are particularly about satisfying certain kinds of tastes, and it's half a trillion dollars just in, in this country. Um, smell. 
which also doesn't seem like a big factor in my life of sense desire, perfumes had annual sales of $15 billion. Perfumes, $15 billion industry. There's a, um, there's a lovely video up on the web. Uh, it's on YouTube that I encourage you to watch when you get home. <laughs> and it was produced by the son of Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, who was a Tibetan teacher who founded uh, Big Sangha in, in Boulder. His son is Sakyong Mipam Rinpoche and a teacher in his own right. And very creative individual, from one of his uh, poems, a student of his or a fan of his created a music video. And it's very, you know, it's a very good Dharma teaching. The title of the video is What About Me? And I'll just read some of the lines. I won't sing it for you. <laughs> I'm going to spare you that. What about me? That's my first thought every morning. What happened to me is my last thought every night. I say this mantra all day long. What about me? When I take a shower, I think, what about me? I hope this shower makes me feel happy. I hope this lunch makes me feel happy. I hope these clothes make me feel happy. This is the spirit of the quest for sense pleasures. We're looking for that hit of happiness again and again and again. And as I said, there's some indication we want the happiness to last, which it doesn't. But there is also a truth that they do bring a kind of happiness. So it's not to overlook that either. When we think about our lives, and imagine that you had no sense pleasures and that you also had no support of meditative states. That would be like being on retreat, but you couldn't meditate. That would be tough, wouldn't it? That could feel pretty bleak. So sense pleasures in daily life bring a kind of a kind of happiness. It's limited, it's temporary, but there is a kind of happiness. The Buddha called this carnal happiness as opposed to spiritual happiness. But he acknowledged the pleasure in it. He also said in another um Sutta, which I think someone mentioned earlier, the analogy of the two darts, how we get pierced by a painful feeling, that's a first dart, and then as our mind obsesses and worries about that pain, we inflict a second dart of mental agitation if we're not a careful practitioner. But further along in that uh, same sutta, he says that sense pleasure is the only way that an untaught, ordinary person knows to escape from painful feeling. This is a really interesting comment. The only way that most people in the world know to escape from painful feeling is by going off and finding a sense pleasure to supplant it, to overcome it. This is really the, um, this is I think the base for addiction. When we are in the world and there is unpleasant experience, either bodily or mental, we develop a habitual pleasure that we go to again and again that then tends to mask or cover over or numb the painful feeling. And because it works once, when the painful feeling comes again, we're inclined to seek that same pleasure again. So it could be addiction to uh, drugs, it could be addiction to food, it could be addiction to sex, could be addiction to uh, social contact, could be addiction to television, alcohol. All these forces are very big in our world. Now the essence of monastic life is that practitioners basically make a vow not to use sense pleasures as a routine outlet. So even in taking um, 10 precepts, I know many of you here are practicing with eight, the 10th precept adds uh, not using money. So that takes away your online shopping as well. We've, we've given up um, 
sexuality, drink and drugs, um, eating after the midday meal, entertainment, movies, music, uh, adornments to beautify the body. It's very interesting as you practice in an extended way with the eight or the ten precepts, you really find that all the normal ways that we go for comfort get shut off or closed off to us. And what that does is throw us on our own inner resources, our own qualities of heart and mind. And that's what develops the deeper uh, kinds of satisfaction and what channels our aspiration into the path. But most of us are not monastics. In fact, I'd say about 98% of us here are not monastics. So as lay people, we, we do not take those vows in daily life. That means that sense pleasures are an integral part of our life as lay people. On retreat, it's different. On retreat, your lifestyles are much more like monastic life. Even if you've only taken five precepts, you've renounced an incredible amount of worldly activity to come here, so your life is much more like a monastic life. In fact, just speaking from my own personal experience, spending three months in a retreat like this would be more difficult for me, more more arduous, perhaps more appealing, but more arduous than spending three months uh, in a monastic environment as, as an ordained monk, but not in a retreat setting because the, um, the requirement of not talking, of solitude, and uh, the relentless uh, practice of mindfulness that you undertake here in itself, uh, to me, is a very, very uh, rigorous challenge. So there are 227 vows in uh, being an ordained uh, monk in our tradition. I've done that a couple of times in my life. And I find that an easier practice, just speaking personally, for a limited period of time than what you are engaged on. Now, people who take long-term monastic vows reach another whole level of challenge. So I don't want to make that comparison in any way. But um, for for short temporary ordinations, which happen a lot in Thailand and Burma, I think what you are doing is is more challenging. So I want to read uh, a a quotation from the Buddha, but I want to preface preface it by a little story. This is from a sutta that's in the Samyutta Nikaya, but it's also in the Jataka tales. And I'll flesh the Jataka tale out toward the end. The Buddha tells this story of a hawk and a quail. And the, the quail is flying through the air. The hawk comes down from above, swoops down and catches the quail in uh, his claws and is preparing to take the quail off to eat it. And the quail starts moaning and saying, oh, I should never have left my home. I should never have left my home ground. Now I'm going to be killed and eaten. I should never have left my home. And the hawk says, well, what, what do you mean? What's your home? And the quail said that um, the earth, where there are these uh, clumps of dirt, that's my home. And if I were there, I would be safe. And the hawk, in a rather proud way, says, I could catch you there too. So he says, I will return you to your home, and I will show you that I can catch you there too. So he lets the quail go. The quail goes back on the ground runs around until she's right beside a clump of soil, then hops up onto the top of this clump of soil and says to the hawk, okay, now I'm home. So the hawk begins a dive from the sky, accelerating very fastly, coming really quickly toward the quail and is about to pounce. But just then the quail slips underneath this clump of soil The hawk cannot break his plunge, and it said shatters his breast on that clump of soil. In the Jataka tale, it said that this was one of the lifetimes of the Buddha. The Buddha was, guess what? The quail. Wisdom, modesty. The hawk was said to be Devadatta, who was his cousin who at a later point in his career tried tried to kill him. And in this story, 
the Buddha survives. So after, after he uh, told this story, the Buddha said, this is a lesson not to leave your own resort, your own home, what is meant for you and where you are comfortable. So he said, practitioners do not stray outside your own resort into the domain of others. Mara will gain access to those who do so. Mara is the personification of the unwholesome forces of mind. Mara will get a hold on them. And what is not a practitioner's resort? The five cords of sense pleasure. And what is a practitioner's resort? It is the four foundations of mindfulness. Here the practitioner is to be understood in the monastic or retreat setting. He's basically saying for people like you, for people who are living a monastic life, your home ground is not the pursuit of sense pleasures. Your home ground is the four foundations of mindfulness. But he said there are others whose home ground is the pursuit of sense pleasures. Those people are lay people. So this sutta made me reflect that you and, and we lead kind of um, lives with, with feet in two worlds. When we come on a retreat like this, we are living in a lot of ways as monastics and spiritual contemplatives have lived over the centuries. When we go home, most of us who are not ordained, then we are living as lay people and all the uh, pursuits of sense pleasures are open and available to us. So how should we relate as lay people, both here on retreat and, and at home? I think this is a, a very interesting exploration and uh, kind, of, kind of a big question. This is a, a passage from the Udana. It's a small book of the Buddha's sayings from a sutta called The Courtesan. It came about because uh, some lay people in a town nearby were actually quarreling over a courtesan who would, uh, who would be able to win her. And the Buddha was talking about two approaches to sense pleasure. And this is what he said. Those for whom precepts and practices are the essence of the teaching, for whom celibacy is the essence of practice, this is one extreme. Those who say, there's no harm in sensual desire, this is the second extreme. Both of the extremes cause the growth of cemeteries. Isn't that great? Cause the growth of cemeteries. He's saying both lead to renewed existence. Both are not the way to liberation. So one extreme holds to precepts, practices, and celibacy as the essence of spiritual life. Not a useful and supportive container, but the essence. This is too rigid a view. This does not uh, give proper place to wisdom and samadhi. But the other extreme are those who say, there's no harm in sensual desires. That's also an extreme. This is an ancient teaching, but I really see these two divergent attitudes in our community today. And, if, and perhaps you've experienced both of them in yourself because I felt both these attitudes kind of ripple through my own mind. One is the attitude that says, any sense desire is wrong. The Buddha said sense desire was not conducive. So if I want something, that's bad. I shouldn't want anything. And even if I do want it, you know, I shouldn't go for it because it's really, it's not nice. Don Juan was talking to Carlos Castaneda at one point in their uh, relationship and said to Carlos, you know, you began by not wanting to get attached by anything, but it ended up that you couldn't enjoy anything. When we ha- if we have this judgmental attitude that desire is wrong, the heart will shrivel up. It becomes very barren. So this is one extreme. And I see this. I've seen it in myself. I've seen it in others. But the other extreme is to say, there's no problem with following sense desires. You know, sense desires are beautiful. 
It's so lovely. That's not a problem. This also is a problem. Because, let me just talk a little bit about um, what I've seen as some of, the, some of the problem with the blind, kind of the blind pursuit of sense desires. Number one, obviously, if we can't get it right then, and the desire is strong, we suffer. Number two, how many times have you wanted something so much that you've gone ahead and pursued it and caused harm to other people or caused harm to yourself? And basically, causing harm to others ends up causing harm to ourselves. The third point is that the pursuit of sense desire as the relief from suffering does create that groove in the mind, which then conditions the mind to look for that same thing again. And a lot of the sense desires that we experience on retreat are those old channels of the mind just playing out again and again. When I'm not feeling well, I need or I want you know, social contact or drink or a certain kind of food or sex or something like that. These are the grooves that we've, we've worn through our own activity of looking to sense desire. Another thing to look at with sense desire in outside life is how much time is spent in the uh, cultivation, the refinement of taste, and the pursuit of those pleasures. You know, as I look around, and this is not a measured, I haven't done a survey, it's not a measured opinion, but as I look around, it's what most of the world does with what we call free time. When we don't have obligations you know, to work or to family, what we do in free time generally is to find something that pleasures us in the five senses. So a lot of time of the world, as indicated by the restaurant and perfume figures, go into this direction. So, Having a judgmental attitude doesn't work. Not questioning and blindly pursuing isn't in accord with the Buddha's teachings. So what are we to do as lay people? And here's where I say I, th- I think each of us needs to make this investigation for ourselves and to really look into the question with our own freedom as the most important criterion. What is going to help the development of our own liberation in the most skillful way possible and find out for yourself. So the question comes up, a sense desire is present, it points me toward an object, should I follow it, should I not? What's the right thing to do? I don't want to do anything wrong. Well, what would the Buddha tell me to do? What would Joseph tell me to do? I don't want to make a mistake. That's not the attitude we we should have with our practice. We have to be free to investigate and explore and find for ourselves, okay, the only way I can do that is to try. So let me try, but with my eyes really open. Let's see what happens if I follow. Oh, how does that lead? How does it feel? Maybe it will be fine. Maybe no one else will be harmed. Maybe I won't be harmed. But we go into it eyes open. If we decide, this time, I'm not going to follow. I followed it so many times in the past This time, I'm curious, what will happen if I don't follow? And that's the practice of renunciation. You know, in a way, you could say that the practice of renunciation is the practice of the second noble truth, carrying out through our actions this um, abandoning of, of craving. And then what we find when we renounce is the desire eventually passes. It seems so strong and so compelling for a while But if we stay with it, eventually it passes. So we learn we have the capacity to just sit through its its lifespan, not to have to act on it. Joseph had a very nice line about this. He said, Restraint of sense desire enables us to verify its empty nature. So we see it's just a a cloud that arises, moves us, and then passes. And it's through practicing restraint or renunciation that we can verify that, that transitory nature. 
The second of the kinds of craving the Buddha talked about is craving for existence. The Pali term here is bhava tanha. Bhava is a word that uh, means existence, sometimes translated as being, sometimes translated as becoming. The very interesting term. The basic existence mean, uh, sorry, the basic meaning of craving for existence means we want to be here in this body, alive in this realm. Because it is this existence that allows access to the contact of the five realms of sense objects. So it's because of this deep-seated longing for existence that we have a fear of dying. And the fear of dying, I I think, is way out of proportion to the reality of dying. And that's what lets us know that there's this irrational uh, longing at the base. Because, I mean, think about die. Suppose you went to bed tonight and you simply did not wake up in the morning. I mean, would that really be a problem for you? <laughs> and yet, if we, if we knew that was going to happen, we'd be terrified because of this craving for existence. So, you know, the actual end, if it came to the end of this body and the end of this mind stream and the end of this flow of sense experience, what's the big deal? And yet we have a, a deep, deep dread of that, the greatest disaster imaginable in our life. So that's the craving for existence. The other aspect of it is a craving to to become something. Uh, A psychological level of bhava is becoming something. So in my early years of retreat, when I was younger, I'd spend a lot of time sort of thinking about where I wanted to live and what work I wanted to do and what kind of community you know i wanted to connect to and what kind of partner you know i might want to connect with and i came to see that all of that was searching for some kind of identity that would give me a security that i didn't have i was in the middle of meditation i was seeing the groundless nature of everything that was arising and passing and i was thinking that becoming somebody would give me a different kind of uh, security a solidity a safe identity. So take a look. A lot of the fantasies that we go through, future fantasies that we go through on retreat, are really driven by this bhavatanha, desire for becoming something. But of course, we, we need to keep in mind um, the advice of Lily Tomlin, who commented, this is from one of her plays, I search for intelligent life in the universe, something like that. She said, I always knew I wanted to be someone but I guess I should have been more specific. (laughs) The third of the aspects of craving is called uh, the craving for non-existence. The Pali is vibhava, tanha. And the basic meaning is that although we have this deep desire to exist, which got us here in the first place, we also have at times a desire not to exist at all. Basically a desire to turn off the impingement of sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, thoughts, moods, emotions, and so on. We have a desire to get away from it all. And sometimes the the mere fact of living and phenomenal existence is experienced as a huge and oppressive burden, full of pain and darkness. And it's, of course, out of this mood of vibhava tanha that people commit suicide, you know, imagining that that is really going to solve the problem. So there's a kind of uh, aversion to life that's this manifestation of, of not wanting to exist, wanting not to exist. It also means wanting to get rid of what is unpleasant. When you find a painful sensation in the knee, and you find yourself thinking, I wish I could get rid of this, that's also a manifestation of wanting it not to exist. So this is the aversion aspect of the tendency of mind. So that's a description of the second noble truth. Then 
As you know, each noble truth comes with a prescription and advice for action. The Buddha said, with the second noble truth, this noble truth of the origin of suffering is to be abandoned. So the instruction is craving is to be abandoned. So this means both momentarily, each time it arises, it needs to be abandoned, and it means uh, finally, that as we walk the path to its very end, we are meant to abandon it once and for all. You know, I think most of us know that this is a good idea. But actually doing it is not that easy. So how many times have you found yourself recognizing that there's some form of greed, aversion, or delusion going on and not being able to release it? Ajahn Chah said that 70 to 80% of spiritual life is knowing that we're clinging and not being able to let go. So, if that's 70 to 80% of your experience, you're at an Ajahn Chah level. So, we've talked about a lot of tools for how to let go, you know, noting the presence of greed, aversion, or delusion, noting the feeling tone on which they're based, many ways of working with the various forms of hindrances. I'm not going to talk about that more. But what I would like to encourage you to do is once you notice a movement or of greed or aversion, to stay with it and kind of watch its uh, changing nature. None of them are permanent. And it's very interesting to be kind of committed to follow one all the way through. This is from the start of the Xin Xin Ming, verses on the faith mind, which I'm sure you've heard before. The great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. When love and hate are both absent, everything becomes clear and undisguised. Make the smallest distinction, however, and heaven and earth are set infinitely apart. That means even a slight bit of greed or aversion separates heaven from us. Notice this. There's a big difference in feeling when, let's just take aversion, when aversion is strong and aversion is weak. There's a big difference in that. You know, qualitatively, it's the same thing, but there's a big qualitative gap. But then watch what happens when aversion goes out of the picture altogether. That's not just a quantitative shift. That's a qualitative shift. When greed, aversion, and delusion are all absent, there are no preferences. Heaven and earth are no longer separated. See what that feels like. Be willing to track the diminishment of greed or aversion until it goes completely away and see what that is like for it to pass altogether. It's really in the uh, abandoning of these forces that we are led directly into the third noble truth. It is in the understanding of unsatisfactoriness and the abandoning of craving that we shift our whole relationship to pain and suffering in our life. And as one teacher said, our practice is to change the conditions that lead to suffering. There is no other practice. So I want to close with uh, two quotes from the Buddha. One showing the magnitude of kind of the situation that we're in. The other pointing uh, the way forward. This samsara means the round of uh, birth and death that we have been on. This samsara is without a discernible beginning. A first point is not evident of beings roaming and wandering on, clouded by ignorance and driven by craving. That is our situation. This has been our condition, the Buddha is saying here, since beginningless time. And the only way out is this third noble truth. This is the noble truth of the end of suffering. It is the remainderless fading away and cessation of that same craving, the giving up and relinquishment of it, freedom from it, non-reliance on it. And we'll talk about that in a later talk. But let's just sit together for a minute, please.
This samsara is without a discernible beginning. A first point is not discerned of beings roaming and wandering on, clouded by ignorance and driven by craving. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.